Well, we are going to jump back into Revelation today after a two-week hiatus, a two-week break. And we're on the home stretch, the final act, the crescendo, uh, the, the great ending of this great book of Revelation. So um, that's what we're picking up on this morning. And we're going to be talking about blessed is everyone who's invited to the marriage Supper of the Lamb. But because we've had a couple of weeks out, like when you watch a Netflix series at home or something on iPlayer and you forget what you've watched and you need a recap, I thought we'd do a little recap this morning of where we're at and the story so far, just to remind ourselves if you've missed the rest of the series or just to refresh our memories of, uh, of what we've studied so far. So this is this book, this final book in the Bible. It is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is three things we've discovered. It is an apocalypse, which means unveiling. It is an unveiling of heavenly realities. It is a revelation of what is really going on in the spiritual realms that John writes. So it is, um, that's what that word apocalypse means. It is this revelation of Jesus Christ and of heavenly realities. But it is also um, a prophecy, and it is also a letter. It's a letter written to churches of the first century in Asia Minor, seven churches in particular, by John, who's on the island of Patmos. And he addresses, we found, in these early chapters of Revelation, all those weeks ago, he addresses three particular aspects of churches in the first century that are being challenged in the context of the Roman Empire and the first was conflict in the sense that they were facing very real persecution. The Christians were being persecuted for their faith and their refusal to bow down to the uh, Roman gods and uh, the um, cult of the empire. And uh, so they were facing true and real conflict. And there's reference to some of them giving of their lives. They were the first witnesses. That they bore witness. They were the martyrs for Jesus Christ. But also, as well as facing conflict, some of the churches are facing complacency and also compliance or compromise. And so the challenge that John writes, or Jesus writes, through John to the seven churches addresses the fact that some of them are compromising, letting in teaching into the church that is contrary to the, to the uh, biblical teaching or contrary to what God says and what God mandates. And also challenges some of the churches who've lost their sense of passion and love as they live in this culture. And then John has a cycle of visions. And we've said that the book of Revelation is not chronological, but it is a cycle of visions. It is, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw, as John is taken up into heaven and sees these visions. And it is important, we said, when we read the book of Revelation, to read it correctly with our lenses on, our correct glasses on. So we realize that a lot of the, old te- a lot of the Revel- book of Revelation leans on and uses the Old Testament and references to the over 500 references to the Old Testament. So when we're reading the book of Revelation, it's very helpful to look through the lens of the Old Testament, through the book of Daniel and the book of Zechariah, and, and, and many of these Old Testament prophecies that are mirrored in the New Testament and also the, the story of the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. 
But the other um, lens that we have to read with when we're reading uh, Revelation is, is the lens of apocalyptic literature. We've reminded ourselves over and over uh, over the last several weeks as we've looked at this book that this is a book of apocalyptic literature. It uses symbolism. It uses numerology. So numbers represent things. And, and there are these vivid pictures that we've been looking at of dragons and beasts and earthquakes and, and dual-like heavenly visions and seas of crystal. And there's so much of, of uh, kind of the visual that gets past our intellect and gets to our emotions and challenges the hearts of both the first century readers, but also us as we listen to the uh, scriptures today. So it's important to read things correctly. I was, uh, the other day, I was stood in front of the mirror and I was uh, snorting what I thought was saline solution um, for my blocked sinuses. And Jenny came up and she said, is, is there any reason that you are snorting the dog's eye drops? <laughs> and um, <laughs> there wasn't a reason apart from the fact that I hadn't read the label. And there were two bottles next to each other. I thought I was snorting saline solution. In fact, I was snorting Sam's eye drops. And um, so it's important to read correctly the book of Revelation with our correct glasses on. Uh, otherwise, we'll get in trouble, all kinds of trouble. And then there are the visions, these great visions of the throne room of heaven, and one like a son of man that John sees. There's much imagery from Daniel and the spiritual reality of, of heaven, and, and it's described, if you remember, as rainbows and jewels and, and the beauty of heaven and the beauty of the throne room of God and that, that lifts these believers' eyes from their everyday lives, their economic exclusion, their persecution, their struggles, just as we would face today, to lift our eyes up to heavenly realities and to see what is really happening as John pulls back the curtains. And the Lord addresses the seven churches. He commends them for their faith. He commends them for their endurance. But he challenges them where they've lost their first love or they've compromised with the society around them. And then John sees this vision of the of the scroll in the hand of God on the throne and, and the question is asked of heaven and, and those underneath is who can open, who is worthy to open this scroll? And the scroll is representative of God's plan of redemption and salvation and judgment. And the cry goes up, who is worthy to open this scroll, to see and to enact, legally enact God's plan of salvation and redemption and judgment? And we find that there is one worthy, and he is the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, who is worthy to open. And then we have this vision of the opening of the seven seals, the wax seals on this scroll, and uh, we follow through the judgments of God upon the earth. And the cry of the saints that rises up at this time that John sees and hears of those martyrs who stand before the throne of God and ask the question, how long, O God, until you until you revenge, avenge our blood and the blood of the martyrs. And the questions that we faced as we read this book was, how long until God brings forth justice in judgment? And, and also, who can stand under the judgment of God? We considered that question as, 
as those looked at the, at, the, at the terror of the Lamb of God and the judgment that was coming. And there followed another vision, which mirrored in many ways the first vision of seven, which was the seven trumpets, the increasing judgment of God upon the earth, a vision of hell and the demonic and the realities of demonic powers that go on behind the scenes. And then we had this great vision of the woman that was the mother of the church and the mother of the Christian community and the mother of the Christ and the dragon and the beast of the sea, which if you remember was political power and governmental power and systems down through the ages and the beast of the land, which is the propaganda and the, the false prophecies and false religion and anything that promotes and promulgates the demonic work of Satan. And we remembered and saw and had a vision of the lamb and the 144,000, which was the redeemed of the Lord. It was a numerical representation of the church down through the ages and and the fact that there will be a great harvest at the end of the age and God will trample on the grapes of wrath and judgment. And there's another series of seven which we came into, which was the seven bowls of wrath. And, and it came out of the prayers of the saints that rose up and the angels took from the altar of God and he, and he threw down, the angel threw down these judgments of God upon the earth which mirrored the plagues of Egypt and spoke of the judgment of God upon all of those who were not marked with the blood of the Lamb, and the cry came from heaven again and again from these angelic beings. God's judgment is just and true and fair. But He has provided a way out for us, for all those that are marked by the blood of the Lamb. And we've considered throughout this book that there are two marks there's the mark of the beast, the number of the beast 666, the number of man. Or there's the mark of the lamb, the blood of the lamb. And we're in one camp or we are in the other. What are we marked by? What are we sealed by? Who do we belong to? Are we under the blood of the lamb, the protection of the blood of the lamb? Because that is the only way to salvation. And this series of visions that is addressing the early church under Roman oppression, but also the church down through the ages, reaches now the home straight and the sense of the end that is coming of the hope of a new heaven and a new earth and the ultimate victory of the Lamb. Remember the story at the start of this series that ultimately if you read anything out of Revelation, it is that the Lamb wins. The church wins. Christ wins. And this is what John is telling these Christians as they are under the cosh. Oh, they are tempted to compromise. He said, you've got to be on a winning side. And the winning side is, is the side of the Lamb. And now we come to... Revelation chapter 17. So that, that was a potted history of the first 16 chapters of Revelation and um, a very potted history, but a, a quick catch-up of some of the ground that we've been covering. And now we come to Revelation 17 and um, what is really a tale of two cities. Do you remember Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities? I read it at school. Um, a Tale of Two Cities or A Tale of Two Women. And, um, and that's the vision that we're going to have now. Let me read to you a few verses from Revelation chapter 17. And again, we're coming to some fantastical images and the language of apocalypse. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. And with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. And there I saw a woman 
sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. And she had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And this title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. So we have this tale now of two cities, of two women. We have a comparison in these coming chapters between the great Babylon, the city of man, or the new Jerusalem. The great city or the holy city. And actually, the way John frames it, he frames it in such a way, uses exactly the same language as he introduces both to show us this comparison so in chapter 17, verse 1, we read, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. And then if you fast forward to chapter 21, verse 9, as he introduces the new Jerusalem, you'll hear exactly the same language. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And then if you look in chapter 17, verse 3, you will hear the words, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Then if you go forward to chapter 21, verse 10, in the New Jerusalem, you hear the same language. And he carried me away in the spirit, to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then if you read in chapter 19, verse 10, you hear this language. At this I fell at his feet, the feet John falls at the foot, feet of the angel, to worship him, but he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then in chapter 22, verse 8, we hear the same language. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and prophets and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So we have this contrast, tale of two cities. We have the great Babylon, whatever that is. And we have the uh, heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And one is portrayed as a whore, as a harlot, or as a prostitute, whichever version of the Bible you read. And the other is portrayed as a bride in white linen. So we have two women, two cities that are contrasted, contrasted with the same language. The harlot versus the bride of Christ. The harlot is a counterfeit bride, is a counterfeit bride. And John paints her in such a caricature, with such satire to this early church and to us, that he's calling for allegiance. He's seeking to expose this great city for what it really is. 
The picture, if you read it, is fairly grotesque. It's a woman clothed in apparently luxurious goods and clothing, draped in jewelry that's glittering like gold. And she's holding a, a golden wine cup, but inside it is sewage and abominations and spiritual adulteries. And she's drunk, this woman, this whore, this mother of all prostitutes, this great Babylon. She's drunk on the blood of God's people, on the blood of the saints. Her cup is full of the most awful sewage. And, and Kirster, who writes about this, says, he says that the message is that Christians may find themselves in difficult straits, but if the other option is to, is to cozy up with a debauched prostitute and her pet beast, readers may find that life outside the mainstream is not so bad. And, and, and John has written, and Jesus has written to the Christians at Sardis and Laodicea, who have been lulled into complacency by their wealth. They are wealthy and they have become complacent in their faith. While those at Pergamum and Thyatira were willing to accept what was called the harlotry of pagan practices in the interest of social harmony, if we just compromise a little bit with these Roman, with these Roman surroundings and this culture and the pagan worship and the temple worship, and, and there's food sacrifice to idols. And if we just keep our heads down and, and don't rock the boat and don't stand up against the culture around us. And John's lampoon of the great harlot was designed to move these first century readers to resist being seduced by the power and the wealth of Rome into compromising their loyalties to God in Christ and the Christian community. The harlot of Babylon represents a power that is not limited to one place or one time. She's sitting on seven hills, which is the seven hills of Rome. It's very clearly representing Rome in John's time, in the century, in the first century, uh, as the first century believers hear these letters read and this prophecy read. It's very clearly identifying with Rome and, and the wealth of Rome and the affluence of Rome and the, and the power of Rome. But it represents every city down the ages that has stood against God and God's people, that has put God to one side and raised up idols. In the Old Testament, harlotry or prostitution is described again and again of the way that God's people turned away from their lover, God, and went and became uh, lovers with the nations around them, with the idols around them. They, they spiritually committed adultery with God and, and went after other gods. And the language throughout the Old Testament repeats this language of, of prostitution, of harlotry. In chapter 17, verse 15 here in Revelation, it says, Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw, the, the harlot is, is, uh, is across the waters, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, languages. And several ancient cities in the Old Testament were described as prostitutes in the, in the same way because their grandeur and their wealth wooed the people of God away from serving him faithfully. The, the city of Tyre was described in this way. The city of Nineveh was described in this way. 
Many casualties, Nahum, this is the prophet Nahum. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. The ancient city of Babylon itself, Babylon, we read in Jeremiah 51, was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore they have now gone mad. Babylon will soon and suddenly fall and be broken, wail over her, said the prophet Jeremiah. And so many of these Old Testament cities were described in the same terms. And Rome itself, many had become intoxicated with the power and the prosperity that the Romans provided. Many made Rome their god. Artistic representations of this time represent the goddess Roma, personified Roman power to the Greek world. And they depict her as a noble woman in battle dress reclining on the seven hills of Rome. And this, John declares, as he sees this vision, and holds up this grotesque kind of reality. This is what Rome is really like. This is what all the affluence that you're buying into, the materialism, the political power. This is what Rome is really like. Drunk on the blood of the saints. The power behind the throne is satanic. This harlot rides on the back of the beast. The scarlet beast, the same beast that we met earlier in Revelation 13. And so the power behind the throne of Rome or behind the throne of Babylon or Tyre or Nineveh or the thousand-year Reich of the Nazis or communism of Russian Empire or uh, the atrocities of other nations or even behind the likes and the constructs of the European Union and every political power and construct that puts God to one side and is the city of man, basically, and promotes materialism and wealth and money and finance and the economy as the answer. It is really the beast behind the harlot, and it's in every age. In John's time, it was in the age of Rome. In our time, it's affected by the cities around us and the world around us and the world values around us that say if you have enough and if you're material enough and if you follow power enough, then you will be content. But John pulls it back, the curtain again, and he shows the arrogance and he shows the violence and he shows the obsession with materialism and luxury as the whore rides on the beast. And then in Revelation 17, verses 14 to 17, we read this. They have one purpose, verse 13, and will give the power and the authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and he is king of kings and with him will be his called and his chosen and his faithful followers. The beast and its allies wage war against the lamb as we've seen throughout this book. The contrasting systems, contrasting values, but ultimately Evil turns in on itself, and we read, as we read on, then the angel said to me, verse 15 of chapter 17, 
The waters you saw where the prostitutes sits are people and multitudes and nations and languages. And the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So evil turns in on itself. Evil turns in on itself, it always does. And the beast will always destroy the city. And the devil will always destroy every construct that is built on him and his values. Evil always self-destructs and self-implodes. And kingdoms and worldviews, we have seen many times over, down through the ages, that exclude God and that turn against his kingdom have no future. Their end is certain and their destruction is assured and will come quickly. Whether it's, as we said, the thousand-year Reich of the Nazis or the communism of Soviet Russia or any other system or construct that raises itself up against the city of God. And so, Kirsten writes, the great city of chapters 17 and 18 represents something that is not confined to one time or one place. The Christians in Asia Minor were called to resist social currents and institutions that were driven by the seduction of luxury and license and power. And readers of later generations are called to do the same. The book of Revelation is a call to discipleship. Whom will you serve? Will you serve the beast or will you serve the lamb? Will you serve the kingdom of this world or will you serve the kingdom of our Lord and God? Which city will ultimately be your home? Where will your citizenship be? Will it be in the great city or will it be in the heavenly city? Will it be Babylon or will it be the new Jerusalem? The great call and command of this section echoes the prayer and the words of Jesus. So we read in Revelation 18 verse 4, the challenge comes to the church. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Come out of Babylon. Come out of Rome. Come out of society and culture in that sense. And what was Jesus praying, John 17, as he prepared to leave this earth, he said, I've given them your word, as he speaks to his Father, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We are faced by the same seductions and the same temptations to compromise our faith. We are tempted, as were these early Christians, to give in to the lure of materialism and the messages of society. We are tempted, as was the early church, to fit in, to not rock the boat, to go with the flow of society and structure that omit God and that still wage war against the Lamb and his followers. And Jesus' prayer still stands. He doesn't want us to be taken out of the world, but to be distinct from it, 
to be followers of Jesus Christ, to be marked by the blood of the Lamb who died for our sins. But the outcome is clear, says John. The fall of Babylon is assured. And we have chapter 18 of Revelation, which is a dirge. It's a funeral for Babylon. We read, I, can't, I don't have time to read it all, but Revelation 18, 21 to 24. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. And no workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. And the sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. And the light of a lamp will never shine in you again. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her were found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Reminds me of the promise of God that there will be in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, there will be no more tears and there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more sighing and there will be no more death and there will be no more pain. And in contrast, here as this dirge, this funeral is held for Babylon, there will be no more life, there will be no more um, trade, there will be no more music. It is dead. It's a vision of a funeral that John holds up, a funeral of a system, of a worldview. And it reminds me of the Christmas Carol by Dickens. You remember Scrooge? We're about that time of year now. Revelation's depiction of the death of Babylon was designed to have the same effect as the vision of his own funeral was supposed to have on Scrooge. She is also wealthy and callous, and grasping, and readers are taken to a desolate graveyard, just like Scrooge was. Revelation 18, 1 to 3, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. The point of the specter, like the point of the visions of the future in Dickens' story, is to move readers to renounce the arrogant and inhumane ways of injustice. The proper response is not a sense of fatalism, but an altered life, to use Scrooge's words. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and you will love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And now, as we reach chapter 19, we have the alternative we have a scripture that is the inspiration for Handel's Messiah, for the Hallelujah Chorus. There's a great sense of joy that begins to swell as Babylon falls, a swelling wave of, 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 of praise and worship. When Handel's Hallelujah Chorus was first performed in Dublin, on April 13th, 1742, 
The choir rose and sang out these hallelujahs, which filled the auditorium. And King George II, who was there, was so moved that he jumped to his feet. And ever since, it is tradition that the audience stands for these great hallelujahs. Let's read them in Revelation 19, verses 1 to 6. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. How long, O God, until you avenge us? And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Hallelujah appears Four times in this section of Revelation 19, verses 1 to 10. It is a literal rendering, the word hallelujah, of the Hebrew behind the Greek. And it means, you praise, hallelujah. You praise Yah, which is short for Yahweh. So it means, you praise Yahweh, hallelujah. It's the only place in the New Testament where this word appears, hallelujah, in Revelation chapter 19. It's nowhere else in the New Testament. But it's found many times in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. And it's found most of all in Psalms 113 to 118, which are known as the Hallel Psalms, because they are the You Praise Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118. And these psalms, they are sung at Passover. They are sung before the Passover meal, the first psalms, and they are sung after the Passover meal. And they are sung because the thread of the Hallelujah Psalms is to praise Yahweh for his deliverance from Egypt at the Passover meal. And Revelation 17 and 18 that we've just skimmed over has described the fall of Babylon, the great whore, and the deliverance of the people of God. And now hallelujah is sung because a new meal is at hand. The feast that celebrates the greater deliverance through the blood of the Lamb, the new Passover. And this time, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb, the arrival of a new heaven and a new earth. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells the parable of the marriage feast. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepares a wedding banquet for his son. Now, the marriage customs of early Judaism were that there were three stages to getting married. 
In the first stage, you would get engaged or betrothed. In the second stage, there would be the preparations that were made for the wedding. And then in the third stage, there would be the wedding supper or the banquet. And the groom would leave his father's house. He would travel accompanied by his best man to the prospective bride's house. And there the groom would finalize arrangements with the bride's father, including what was the tradition at that time to pay a purchase price for the bride. In those days, the bride was bought with a price. And once the betrothal had taken place, the engagement had taken place, a new covenant was established between the bridegroom and the bride-to-be. And it was sealed as they drank a cup of wine together. And they would drink this cup. And they would say, this cup is a new covenant. So the couple was then engaged and the groom returned to his father's house. And the bride-to-be was consecrated to the groom. She was set apart. And the groom would be gone for approximately 12 months when he would prepare a place for his bride in his father's house. He would then return for his bride and his arrival would be announced with the shout that's recorded in Matthew 25 verse 6. Here is the bridegroom. Come out. Come out to meet him. And then with great joy, the bride and her maidens would come out and they would be carrying lamps and the wedding feast could begin. About AD 33 in Jerusalem, Jesus was sitting, having a Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. He took a cup of wine He gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus then tells them as he approaches the end of his life on this earth that he's leaving and they cannot come where he is going yet. And Jesus says to them, and it's recorded in John chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the husband of the people of God, and we, the church, are his bride. He has paid the purchase price for us with his own blood. He has sealed the engagement with us with a cup of wine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He is preparing a place for us in his father's house. And he is coming again to take us to himself, to be with him forever. We have been betrothed. Imagine then how John's heart raced as the revelation unfolded. 
And he heard the multitude shouting, Hallelujah! The time has come for the marriage feast. Send out the invitations. In verse 9, blessed. Blessed is everyone who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Do you see the contrast in these chapters between a drunk prostitute and a cup of abominations and the bride dressed in fine linen, bright and clean, and the cup of a new covenant. Do you see the stark choice that John is placing before the first century church, and by extension before us? Babylon, the great city, or the heavenly New Jerusalem? The tottering, drunken prostitute of political and governmental power and affluence and influence, or the pure bride of Christ? The choice is stark throughout Revelation. Whom will you serve? Where is your allegiance? What will mark you? Are you in the Lamb's book of life? Have you been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb? That which looks so alluring and attractive now will utterly fade away. Make sure that you are investing in that which will last forever. So Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths and eat, eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And John said, in 1 John, in one of his earlier letters, in 1 John 2, 15 and 17, he said these words, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. This is a great vision, this revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a great vision of spiritual reality in what John has done by painting this satirical picture, this grotesque image of a tottering harlot on the back of a beast saying this is what Rome, this is what every city of man is really like. This is what affluence and materialism will really lead to. But we are the bride of Christ. We are dressed in linen. We are waiting for the return of our bridegroom. And this hope awaits us a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, which we're going to come to in the coming weeks as we close out on Revelation. And the cry goes up, 
You praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. Let's pray. We've said each week as we've preached through this book of Revelation, this stark choice that's given us. And I want to invite you, if you're here today or within earshot of this message online, perhaps, you've never given your life to Christ. You've never aligned yourself with the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. You're in one camp or the other. And you want to make sure that you are going to be invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, that you're among that people The only way is to be covered by, the only way to overcome is by the blood of the Lamb, is to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, to be saved by him, and to have the hope of eternal life. And if you would like to turn your heart towards God this morning and invite him into your life and heart, I would like to lead you in prayer to do that. Maybe you would just pray something like this in your heart. Dear God, I pray that you will forgive me for everything that I have done wrong. I accept that you died on the cross for me. And I pray that you will cover me, that you will come into my heart and life and give me a fresh start. Put clean clothes on me. I want to belong to Christ. I want to serve him. I want to be marked by him and all that he represents. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. And I receive your forgiveness by faith. Lord, every one of us, as we uh, contemplate this book, it is a call It is a call to discipleship. It is a call to allegiance. It is a call to be radical followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, whether we feel conflicted or whether we feel compromised or complacent, I pray, God, that we would be seeing again a fresh vision of heaven and heavenly reality and that we would join with this great hallelujah chorus that we will praise Yahweh, that we will join with the angels and the elders and all the creatures of heaven and earth in praising you, this great chorus of affirmation and praise. We thank you, God, that we are, if we have given our lives to you amongst that number who have been marked with the blood of the Lamb and will overcome by the word of our testimony and by not loving our lives even unto death. Thank you for this hope of heaven, God. And I thank you that we are the bride of Christ, awaiting the return of our bridegroom and this great wedding feast of the Lamb. 